Hey folks, welcome to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Sergeant Barrett. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we will be interviewing teammates from around the base and learning about them and their keys to success. All right, everybody, welcome back to the next episode of Refuel Team Fairchild. Today, we're going to uh, go a little different direction than we normally go, which is which is going to be awesome. And we're, we're sitting down talking with a Staff Sergeant Phil DeFratis from the 66th Training Squadron here at the uh, Sears Specialist Training School. He's an instructor. Sergeant Freitas, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Sergeant Barrett. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, no problem. Um, I've been wanting to, to get out and kind of diversify the people that we that we have on the podcast. And, um, you know, you and I talked after an NCOPE that we held, held one time, and you had a pretty interesting story, and we had a good conversation about steer and backpacking and stuff like that. Yeah. So I just thought it would be really awesome to kind of sit down and interview you and talk about your, you know, experiences in the Air Force, what a steer specialist does, um, what we can dive into. And uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and get going. So uh, start off with, let's tell us your story. How'd you get to where you are today? Well, it's been uh, a bit of a, a long road to get here, but we'll go back to the beginnings. I'm originally from Springfield, Illinois. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's not from Illinois thinks like, oh, Chicago. Well, there's a, the whole rest of the state. And so <laughs> Springfield's the capital, home of Abe Lincoln. Maybe you've heard of him, uh, formative character in our country's history. So a little bit, yeah. Central Illinois, uh, I was born and raised there for pr- pretty much 20 years I graduated high school. I went to college because, you know, that's what the parents wanted me to do. Needs to say, when I was in college, I just didn't feel that I had focus or direction. Mm-hmm. And I had always felt a calling to serve. Um, my my papa and my great-grandfather on my father's side both served in World War II. And then my granddad on my mom's side served in the Air Force between uh, Korea and Vietnam. And so I always kind of had this calling, this draw. And so I figured, well, I'm not doing anything productive in college. So... <laughs> Let's go ahead and join the Air Force. What, what were you studying in college, just out of curiosity? Um, I was a political science major. Okay. So that was my uh, that was the only major that I had at the time, and again, just decided this wasn't really for you. I yeah, I was I lacked focus and direction, mm-hmm. and and honestly, a little bit of discipline at that time. So, you know, that's interesting you say that, and and I think it's kind of crazy. Sorry, I'm kind of going off on a side thing here, but I would like your thoughts on this. It's kind of crazy how we force not force, but we encourage 18 year olds to try to pick what they want to do for the rest of their, for life. The rest of their lives i'm yes. a very different person than i was at 18 and if i had gone to college well i did go to college for a year similar and um same thing i just mm-hmm. i wasn't really happy with what i was studying I, I would have gone a whole different direction i probably would have hated so yeah. um it's it's pretty interesting that you had the it's, same experience i i encourage i don't have i'm single i don't have children I've never been married but i encourage my friends now that do have children to not do that with their kids to tell their kids to go go work at a at a mountain resort somewhere straight out of high school Mm -hmm. go get some other life experiences that will help shape who you are and give you some insight because i think it's a common thing in the military i've heard and i'm 32 years old now and i always say like well i still don't know what i want to be when i grow up (laughs) and that's not the first time i've heard that you know that's not an original quote from me i've heard many people say that um it was still a good experience to go to college and that at least helped me open up a little bit of insight mm-hmm. into, well, I'm not doing anything extremely productive here. And then I also enjoy reading in, in my uh, leisure. So I came across this quote out of a book called The Dow Warren Buffett. And he said, if you don't know what you want to do, join the military. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that'll help you decide, well, you'll at least know if you want to be in the military. Yeah, or not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe that will motivate you or inspire you to go find and pursue something that is not the military, if that's the case. Yeah. 
I think, and, and just as importantly too, you learn what you don't want to do, which I think is just as important as learning what you do want to do. Yeah. You may not know, I still may not know exactly what I want to do in life, mm-hmm. but I have a, a pretty long list of things that I know I don't want to do. So, yeah. hey, I've checked those off. Yeah. All right, well, let's focus on anything outside Absolutely. of that, uh, or maybe that doesn't share those same qualities as far as what a job is. Okay. And, and I still kind of struggle with that today. So, like I said, I decided to join the Air Force. I was 19. But I'd been out of high school for a year, did a year of college. So the year after, when spoke with the recruiter, and I walked in. Um, prior to that, I had made the decision, I'm joining the Air Force. Mm-hmm. I was kind of between Navy and the Air Force just because of my family. Um, I had written off the Army and, and the Marine <laughs> Corps pretty easily. Um, so I decided upon the Air Force. My, my granddad, who served in the Air Force, is like one of my greatest role models ever. Okay. I admire that man. And that's and, what kind of pushed you over there? So that's what guided me into the Air Force. Okay. Um, so I, I literally sat down and went through every job that the Air Force had posted on their website as mm-hmm. far as what you could do as an enlisted person without a degree. And so I wrote down a handful of jobs after reading through every single job and every single job description. And I settled on uh, what are now essentially the special warfare career fields uh, and including SEER. Mm-hmm. And as I read through those descriptions and thought about, you know, what interests me, what sounds like fun, I settled on SEER at that point. And then I went and I spoke with the recruiter and recruiters now know so much more than what recruiters then yeah. Uh, yeah. with <laughs> regards to what we do as a career field, because he didn't have any idea what we did as a yeah. career field. And I read the basic description and that sounded exciting, which was more accurate than what he pitched to me. Mm-hmm. What he pitched to me was something a little bit different as a lot of people from my era came in, got like a totally different story. Um, but regardless, here I am today, yeah. you know, having originally came in back in 2008. So I made that decision. I said, Hey, I want to join. I want to do this. You know, he gave me the packet to go home over the weekend and think about it. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I already thought about this. This is what I want to do. So it ended up taking me about six months before I got my ship date, which was January 8th of 2008. Okay. And What, uh, what made you decide to settle on, on SEER versus the other career So fields? based on the other career fields and my background and wh- like where I kind of grew up was a slightly more rural. And I just had a lot of experience growing up hanging out in the woods, riding four-wheelers. Mm-hmm. Um, just I spent a lot of time in the woods just kind of that was that's where I played, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I felt very comfortable in the woods just, you know, by myself. And, and I just had fun with that. Mm-hmm. And when I read what Sear did as far as, you know, what the mission is and, you know, training the individuals that are high risk of isolation personnel and then saying that, hey, you're going to be outdoors. You're going to be doing a lot of essentially orienteering or mountaineering. And mm-hmm. I saw the other pictures and they, you know, they mentioned jump school. And I was like, yeah, I want to jump out of an airplane. That sounds awesome. It was up in Washington, and the most amazing vacation I ever had in my life was to the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I'd always wanted to return to the mountains. Yeah. And so that was a big draw. I was like, well, I'm going to get to go to Washington. And then it has all these other things going on where it was like, you're going to go to Pensacola, and you're going to go to Washington, and you're going to go to you know, Fort Benning, Georgia, and you're going to go out to the coast. And so I was like, sweet, I'm going to get to travel a ton. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, what they don't tell you is a SEER guy, you join the Air Force and you get stuck at Washington for basically your first four years or longer. Oh, okay. So um, that is kind of a, a misnomer that not everybody realizes that you will be here. So so that's why I decided to stick and, and go with SEER. Okay. Uh, it appealed to my past, what I was kind of experienced as a kid. And it, it also 
somewhat enticing to me to learn those basic skill sets of survival, yeah. of navigation, of building a shelter, things that I'd enjoy doing as a kid trying to have fun, but things that I didn't, I didn't necessarily know. I right. didn't have the, I spent time in the woods, but I, you know, I never had that individual that, you know, like taught me how to use a map and compass. Uh, my uncle would like take me fishing and, and all of that was fun, but I thought that would be a really good skill set to have that maybe someday I could pass on to my, you know, future children or niece, nephew, something of that nature. So, so I made the decision. Uh, I took the, you know, back then you, it was called the GTEP guaranteed enlistment program. Mm -hmm. So you had to take the SEER pass, the physical aptitude and stamina test, I believe is what that stands for. Yep. So I took that, I signed my contract and then that was June or July of 2007. I shipped out January of 2008 Back in that time frame, it was the six-week-long basic training, mm -hmm. as I'm sure that you did as yep. well. Yep. So I did my six weeks down in San Antonio, <laughs> and then they did have like seer guys in my flight. So out of the, I don't know, forty some odd people we started with, like twelve or thirteen of us were seer guys. I was I became the dorm chief of my basic training flight, and then we went through, graduated, and then we hopped across the street to Medina, which mm -hmm. is now Chapman Training Annex, which Fun little tidbit about that. So Master Sergeant John Chapman, you know, awarded the Medal of Honor. I actually was in Afghanistan back in 2018 at Camp Chapman where they did the memorial or the, the, oh, wow. the Medal of Honor ceremony. So that was actually pretty cool when I saw that they renamed uh, Medina Annex the John Chapman Annex. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So back on track, I go over there and it was called uh, Sears Specialist Selection back in those days it was a two-week course um, like an indoc type course it's exactly what it was okay so what, what, they, that, what, what, does, what does that entail so you show up you in process and and i so this is kind of some naivety on my part at the time i so i turned 20 years old in basic training the day i grabbed the day we became airmen okay. so like the airman ceremony was on thursday and then like you graduated friday then you had the weekend and then you shipped out mm -hmm. so i turned 20 years old that weekend i show up to the 342nd is what it was back in the day. And I am process. And there's some guys there that were like washbacks that didn't get selected from the previous iteration. And so they kind of knew what was going on, took us under the wing and showed us the ropes. Like, okay, guys, you need, you know, we need to go get our Sophies, which is those really short, short black shorts that we all wear running around. Yeah. Uh, we need to get your, your name stenciled on your gear and, and you know, they're just giving us all this stuff. I'm like, all right, tomorrow we're going to go in, do our ends. We'll walk you through that process. So there was like a whole process every time in the morning you, you got in formation, you marched over to the schoolhouse, you did your ins, which consisted of push-ups and pull-ups. Um, what does ins mean? What, what, so ins and outs is like what you owe every time you go into or out of a building. Oh, wow. So for us, as you were going through the pipeline, every building you enter and exit, you will owe a certain amount of pull-ups and or push-ups, unless it's the building that you sleep in. That's okay. the one place where you don't have to put forth any additional effort. But if it's going to chow, if it's showing up to the schoolhouse, if it's and the, and the same thing, it starts down there at INDOC or SEER Specialist Selection or what we now call SEER Specialist Training Orientation Course mm -hmm. or Stock, And that transfers all the way up here to STAC, SEER Specialist Training Apprentice Course. That's the formal uh, SV81 Alpha SEER Specialist okay. Training. So every building you go into, unless it's the building that you live in, you will do a certain amount of push-ups and or pull-ups hmm. as just what you owe as your dues, your ins and your outs, as we call them. Hmm. So 
they showed us that whole process and they're like, then you're, you know, we're going to meet the cadre. So here I am, 20 years old, just fresh out of basic training. And I'm like, oh, this will be great. It'll be a little meet and greet session. <laughs> tell me about themselves. You know, I'll tell them about myself, maybe why I want to be here. Um, the introduction to cadre consisted of basically issuing us our first, like our ruck. So, you know, our pack and then making sure that we have the appropriate amount of weight. And a teammate of mine, uh, Levi Wood, He's, he's still in to this day, and I remember he was one of the more experienced guys that got rolled back from the previous iteration just because he got sick. And he said, hey, man, um, you only have to have 65 pounds, but I would recommend putting in 70 and then carry that 70 so that when we do the graduation ruck, which was four miles with 65 pounds in under an hour, so 15-minute miles, mm -hmm. you can take five pounds out and it's that much lighter. And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. Let's mm -hmm. do it. It made sense to me at the time. Uh, so that's what we did. And I was like, all right, so when are we going to meet these cadre? So um, a couple cadre members that I recall were, it was senior man Brown, who I, I'm not sure where he's at nowadays. It was senior man Kleckler, who's now a Stowe. Um, and then I think it's senior man Ost. So they, senior man Brown walks out and he's just like, let's go. And we're all standing around like, what? And, and he's got a ruck on and he just starts <laughs> just going. I'd never rucked before in my life. Like there was not all the resources out there for training to go to Sear and like what you need to do. Right. I, I was just fortunate. I was, I was an athlete in high school. I played football. And so like I trained, I lifted, I did the best that I could to, to get in shape and I was in decent shape, Yeah. but I had never worn a, a pack with weight outside of like my book bag. And so we just take off and I'm like, well, all right. And this guy is, I mean, he's not running, but it's like, this seems like a rather hurried pace yeah, with all this weight I have quick. on my back. So I just, I just keep thinking to myself, like, I just have to keep up with him. Like, I don't know how far we're going. I don't know where we're going. I don't know when this is going to end, but I have to keep up with him. And I did for the most part. There were some times I fell back. And next thing I remember, I don't know how much time has gone by. I have no idea how far we went, but we get back to an area at Medina or Chapman that has this big dirt track. If anybody's mm -hmm. been there, they yep. know what I'm talking about. So he stops and he drops us. And I'm like, well, okay, that just means he's dropping us for push-ups. So we get in the front lane rest. So I go to take my pack off. No, no, no. I didn't say take your pack off. I said drop. <laughs> so we drop and he's like, you guys are going to stay in this position until the rest of your team catches up. And so we had started that day with, I believe, 32 or 33 individuals at, at my selection course. And... And I look back and realize there's like four of us. Oh, wow. And I'm like, where did everybody go? Why are they not? Like, we have one job to do. Keep up with this guy. Where are they at? So yeah. however much time goes by, eventually everybody gets back and they proceed to smoke us, which is, you know, our first lesson, right? You got to stay together as a team. Right. Okay. You, so they're teaching you exactly. that part of it. So yes, this sucks. Yes, this is hard. You have to be able to perform. But I, you know, I didn't realize... I had left my team behind mm -hmm. and my team had failed from, you know, not keeping up. So that was kind of one of the first lessons like, okay, always be looking out for your teammate. You know, if, if somebody is struggling, you need to help him out. You yeah. need to hang back with them. The old adage, you know, you're only as strong as the, as the weakest link or mm -hmm. you're only as fast as the slowest person. So anyway, uh, that was, that was that experience. And then fast forward, they give us our initial impro assignments, so we have to improvise. So it's probably a common rumor like, oh, seer guys have to sew. What's that about? Well, what we're doing is a couple things. A, we're utilizing equipment off what an air crew flight member might have, like 
in their harness mm -hmm. or equipment they might have with them as their survival gear. And then we're using that to improvise something based off of what our needs might be. So A, you're learning to adapt and to utilize something or repurpose it in a survival situation, which is good because that's what an individual might have to do if they're isolated. They have X amount of equipment, they might have a Y problem, well, they have to solve for Z and figure what that what mm -hmm. that is. So that's part of it. Then the other part is your attention to detail. Believe it or not, it's a really effective way to give somebody very specific instructions by saying you have to sew this piece of material to these dimensions with this many stitches in any given inch. Mm. And if it's wrong, you start over and you do it all over again. So very, we're a very detail-oriented career field just because of the implications that has later on in our career yeah. field where you can't afford to miss a detail. You can't afford to not train somebody. You can't afford to ensure they don't know the proper uh, radio programming frequencies or what their responsibilities are to help affect their own recovery. Mm -hmm. I can't afford to miss a detail when I'm briefing a two-star general in Afghanistan with regards to what the personal recovery infrastructure is in that theater. Right. So it starts out there and that attention to detail. And it also shows, I'm not going to lie, it doesn't. it's not fun to, to sew. It's simply not. Yeah. So how bad do you want to be here? Well, bad enough to sew the stupid freaking equipment uh, that you will use. So anyway, I stay up all night sewing some stuff. The very next morning, I turn it in. Well, I didn't pay attention to detail. And even though I had the proper amount of stitches per inch, the overall length of my product for this particular knife sheath that I was making out of some webbing, it wasn't long enough. So I'll never forget that particular cadre cutting Every, all the work that I had done, and I just had to start over anew. And I had to get it done that next day because the following day we were going to the woods, and that was your last chance. So mm -hmm. anyway, I stay up all night. I get all my sewing done. I go to the woods the next day, or rather I go to present everything, and I'll never forget uh, Senior Man Kleckler looking at me and just being like, hey, you uh, you look pretty nervous about this. <laughs> and, I, and I remember looking at him and I said, uh, yes, Senior Man Collector, you have no idea how bad I want this. And I was at, like, I hadn't even begun and I was already at the brink of failure because I didn't pay attention on, on a stupid detail about mm -hmm. sewing. Well, fortunately, I got it right the second time. So fast forward, we go through our field portion and it's a basic introduction of, hey, here's a shelter. Here's how you make stakes. Here's how you build a shelter. Here's how you tie some knots. Mm. This is how you procure water. This is how you purify water. This is, we got our first introduction to killing and skinning a rabbit and then cooking a rabbit. Mm -hmm. um, this, is all, this is all the two-week course. Yeah, this is, so the first week for us was all on base and it's just like PT every day. You do some lessons with the inner, you know, your first lesson is basically a two to three minute TNC or time and circumstance on who you are. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like me telling you this story right now. Like I can tell you this story very well because it happened to me. Right. I am the most qualified person to tell you the story <laughs> of my yeah. life. So... You do that on base, then you go to the woods for the second week. And that's where they teach you the shelter and all okay. that stuff. So every single day, and as I know now, being cadre, being an instructor, we have a syllabus. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of objectives to meet, but when you prioritize your time and you make sure that everybody's hustling, moving with a sense of purpose, then we can accomplish all those things. Mm -hmm. Like I was saying, rabbit, shelter, food, water, you know, cactus, and all that fun stuff. And then, uh, then we did a, a navigation exercise so that was like our basics to land nav. And then uh, for us, the culmination was they just threw us out there, gave us a, parameters to stay within. 
Uh, and they were like, all right, use your skills to accomplish these objectives. And there was no team anymore. There was no okay, cause so it wasn't anymore. as a team. It was, it was by just yourself. By yourself. Okay. So like you had some gear that was in your pack, like your minimum packing list. Mm -hmm. You had a list of assignments. You have to build a shelter. You have to gather materials for a fire. You have to procure food and water. You have to determine your general location. You have to mm -hmm. do all this stuff that they had just taught you how to do over the, you know, the preceding days. Um, and then, you know, randomly a cadre would come by and check on you and be like, all right, what's up with that or, or whatever. All right, cool. Um, I remember him commenting on like the tender that I chose and I had seen it on like a bear grill show. Um, and he was very skeptical, like, eh, I don't know if that's going to work. And I know why now having gone through the course and, and understanding, um, at, at a more, you know, a higher level of understanding why he was a little skeptical, mm -hmm. but fortunately in my favor, it worked out and I was able to get that, that fire started. So, uh, after that, they basically lined us all up and they said, they called a few names, told them to get on the bus. And by this point in time, like I said, we started with like 32. By this point in time, a new, like tons of people had either failed a PT test or failed another evaluation or quit. I remember this particular cross training. We were in the woods on the first night and we were all sleeping in a group shelter. And he was like, this sucks. I'm cold. It was, it, you know, we're in Texas and it was like March. It wasn't yeah. that cold. And he's like, I'm cold. This sucks. This is miserable. Why would anybody want to do this? <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, oh, no, it's not that bad, man. Like, yeah. it, it could definitely be worse. And so he quit like the very next morning. Um, so people were quitting left and right. Mm -hmm. And at the end of our course, uh, that iteration, there were eight of us that were selected to get sent up to Washington here at Fairchild. Mm -hmm. So like a week or two went by about processing and, you know, all of a sudden, like the military does its thing. I've got plane tickets. And we, I report up here. Yep. Um, so, and that, that's how I got here. Yeah. And you've been here, you've been up here since then. No. So that was 2008. So I was up here. I went through training my class number. So every SEER guy is basically, I won't say defined by, but they are identified by their team number. So mm -hmm. I, if you were a zero one series, like an Oh nine Oh one, like myself, uh, you are a summer class if uh -huh. you, and so the first year depicts the year and then the, or the first number rather is the year. And then the second number is like what iteration. So summer uh, or winter. Gotcha. Okay. So Oh nine Oh one means that I was the first class in the fiscal year of Oh nine to graduate. Gotcha. Then my preceding class Oh nine Oh two second class in the fiscal year of Oh nine. And then, so it progresses. So we are about to start class, uh, 20, well, what is it? 2101. Yeah. Right. So wow. we're about to start class 2101, <laughs> which is crazy considering, you know, I was 0901. Yeah. Uh, it definitely makes me feel old. So then the 02 series, their winter classes, they will always claim that they are the harder class, the more difficult class. If anybody's listening, they're probably getting a little chuckle out of it because it's a, <laughs> it's a joke we have within our career field. As cadre, I, you know, I've put through several winter and summer classes. Yeah, winter sucks. Yeah, it's definitely colder, uh, but that's why summer class is really better instructors because we retain more information. So uh, that's my jab at them. So once you graduate through team, so like we can talk about you know what what training consists of, but just to summarize real quick, you go through all the phases, you graduate, then you get assigned to the twenty second training squadron, and you teach SEER school, right? Mm -hmm. The Air Force's survival school, and. That's for the like pilots and air crew. And, yep. And, okay. So all the other uh, Air Force special warfare, high risk of isolation, pilots, air crew members, all those individuals go through 
what was formerly referred to as SV80, but has, I mean, very recently within just last month, I believe actually this week is the first like official new new course that they're running. And the purpose behind that was SV80 A and B was a basic catch-all level C code of conduct training course. Mm-hmm. The Air Force and the DOD has identified not everybody needs a level C. They might need a level B or even a B plus per se. So when you look at the code of conduct training as it is, from the DOD and the JPRA. So the Joint Personnel Recovery Agency is kind of like the governing body for all code of conduct training. Mm-hmm. So they're the individuals that say whether or not a course is in compliance with their standards. Okay. So the Navy has a SEER course and they run their SEER course for both the Navy and the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. They have a couple locations. Then you also have the Army that has their SEER courses. They have a couple locations, specifically if you're like a Ranger or a Green Beret going through or versus just an air crew. Mm-hmm. And then the Air Force, we have our SEER course. We, right. have, we have one level C location, but we have an additional level B location down in San Antonio where we teach ECAC or evasion mm-hmm. and conduct after capture. Yep. So you essentially have three levels, A, B, and C. Level A, code of conduct training. Everybody gets that at basic training. That basically means you are aware that there is a code of conduct (laughs) and you have been briefed on it and you've probably read through what those articles are, all six of them. Mm -hmm. Level B is more in depth. And then you have level C, which is the highest level. Full spectrum is what we like to call that. So full spectrum, meaning peacetime, wartime, hostage. So you have peacetime governmental detention, or you have wartime, you're a prisoner of war, or you're a hostage. Okay. So full spectrum means that we prepare that individual to survive, evade, resist, and escape in any one of those environments. Now, level C is the highest you can get. However, there are specialty courses for specialty units based upon what their mission is, where they might get more specialized training that is unique to them Mm -hmm. and their mission. And so that is something that you as a SEER specialist could go through if you were assigned to support those units or provide training for those units and or if you're a member that is going to be required to conduct operations that might lend you to a higher risk, therefore getting higher training. But level C is the highest it gets. So that's what we teach here at Fairchild and as part of the 336 training group. So the new system is basically... Everybody comes up and gets their level B, but only the individuals, specifically like the pilots and the air crew and, you know, our Air Force Special Warfare, our CCTs, our PJs, our CROWs, our STOs, all those individuals, Mm -hmm. SR, TACP, they will continue on and get the higher level uh, so that they're prepared for whatever they might face. So that's what you do once you graduate and become a serious specialist. You go over the 22nd, you teach that course. Usually you're there for two to three years, and then guys will move over to our water survival that we teach over on main side. Mm. So they teach, you know, like ditching. So if an air crew has to go out over the ocean, how do you live in a raft? Or if it's a helicopter that crashes in water and flips upside down, how do you safely escape from that helicopter okay. so that you can get back to the surface. And then what do you do once you're in the water? Gotcha. And, and then that's also, that big, because I've, I've been, I swim at the pool sometimes yep. and I've seen the big contraption in there. Is that, I'm assuming that's what, yep. that's like a mock aircraft type. Exactly. So it's, it's a device that can be reconfigured 
to have different escapes for different aircraft. Mm -hmm. So they can configure it or place you in positions that are, if you're a front seater, this is how you would escape from that aircraft if you're the pilot or the nav, or if you're in the back seat, how you can remove that door. And they do it in a progression so that you start in a chair that flips you upside down so that you can kind of get comfortable and okay, I'm, I'm upside down underwater and I have to breathe, you know, on my, on my oxygen. Mm. And then from there I go to the larger device. So it's the sweat chair and then the Mets. Um, so then they move over to the Mets device. They put you in it and they call it the dunker, right? Mm. So they dunk you in and initially you practice like, okay, it's just dunked me in. Now I got to get out the progression. It dunked me in, it flipped me upside down. Now I have to get out. Now the final progression is like blackout. So blackout goggles, it dunks me, it flips me upside down. I have to get out. I have to link up with the rest of my crew. We have to get in the raft and we have to begin meeting our needs. Mm -hmm. And they have an amazing suite of effects over there with regards to the wave ball and the sound effects, you know, all this stuff to help simulate and, and make it seem as real as it can get without actually being out in the ocean okay. uh, during a storm. So and that's interesting because um, all I ever knew about it was that those guys come in from the pool, make everything wet in the locker room. And leave, <laughs> and, but but now that I know that, that that's pretty interesting in there. Um, and just just to backtrack a little bit because I do I do want to definitely start getting into some of the assignments that Sear Specialist can have. But I mm -hmm. get this question a lot from okay. people wanting to retrain to Sear. So as a someone who made it through the school, because I know mm -hmm. you, you all have a pretty high attrition rate. And now as an instructor, what are what are two pieces of advice you would give somebody on what they need to do or maybe a mental, mental fortitude they need to have to make it through the school and successfully graduate become a SEER specialist? Obviously, this is based off my own personal experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, Who better to, to get that advice? <laughs> <than me? laughs> yes. And, and so you're right. I, I did make it through successfully, and I'm now a cadre at the course. Mm -hmm. What I would give, what I would advise individuals that are seeking to accomplish this is to first and foremost be committed mentally to this task. Uh -huh. So much so that there is no other option. That there is no plan B. There is no gotcha. fallback. Think of it in, in terms of living or dying. Like there is, there is just no other option. And Anybody that thinks, well, I've got this other backup, you've already lost. Okay. You've already mentally prepared yourself for failure or quitting because you've created your plan B. Gotcha. Uh, so Sun Tzu, the art of war, people have heard about him. One of the things that he talks about is if you want to, if you want to get the best fighting out of your men, back them up against a wall mm -hmm. so that the only way that they live in that battle is they have to fight their way through to victory. Gotcha. So don't get me wrong. We're not going to kill you. But <laughs> I know what put yourself in a position mentally that you are so committed to this. And for those people that have families or children or anything else, they have to be on board with it as well. Mm -hmm. Because while it's not forever, for a period of time, we're going to ask a lot of you mm -hmm. and 100% commitment and focus. So that means having your finances in order, having your life in order, having your family in order, your wife on board your children on board, hey, mom or daddy's going to be gone for a long time or going to have to not be home or whatever the case may be. Right. But they have to prioritize that training. And that's what we're asking for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. After that, I say we have a pretty strong support structure in our career field. Uh, the second thing that I would say, so first one being, you know, commit to it mentally. Right. The second thing I would say is know your why. So commit to it. But then also know why you want to do this. 
Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With Why. It's a phenomenal book. Mm-hmm. He also has, I think it's one of the most popular watched uh, TED Talks. Yeah, I've and seen that one. That's good. The TED Talk does a great job of summarizing the book, but I would still encourage people to read that book. You need to have that why that will help with number one and committing to it. Why do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. Is it because you think that we have a cool job? Uh, is it? I, I do. I will. I have a cool job. I'm not going to lie. Does that mean that my job is always easy or fun? It's not. Right. There are a lot of times where people don't, they see the fun things we do, the cool guy stuff we get to do. They see us jumping out of planes. They might see us with nice gear. Uh-huh. Well, there's a reason why we have nice gear. It's because we're putting that gear to the test day in and day out. We have an office building over here. This is this is like a, a train stop, right? Our office is in a more uncomfortable area, at least here. Don't get me wrong. That can change in other assignments. But right. as far as what I do as cadre for SEER specialist training, I spend almost more time out in the woods than I do here on mm-hmm. base or than I do at my house. Right. And if individuals aren't prepared for that lifestyle, then they need to consider that. Mm-hmm. So yes, there are, there are immense advantages to making it through it for a lot of people it is and will be the greatest accomplishment of their life or at least certainly a formative one Uh that will lay a foundation for other great accomplishments that they will go on to do but if they're not committed and they don't know why they're committed then oftentimes i believe that's when i see individuals fail or quit Uh so so interesting thing that i definitely want to recap then because i get the question a lot is you know, people think it's all about the physical training. Like, what do I need to do to get in shape? Which I'm sure is important, but mm-hmm. what's interesting about what you just said is it's both of your pieces of advice were mental. You got to get your mind right. And then, you know, I'm not saying that the physical part will just happen like that, but I'm sure. To an extent, it will, in my opinion. Right. Um, there's, there are, it is a physically demanding job. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that, that I can say with physicality is, you have complete control over how hard you want to train for something. Mm-hmm. So by coming in physically prepared, you're simply mitigating one of the mental challenges that you're going to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm physically prepared, then yes, there's going to be days where you're tired, you're hungry. Uh, there's going to be exercises where they are difficult, but it's not going to be anything new. It's not going to be a new mental challenge for you. Right. So Yes, train yourself, prepare yourself as physically as you possibly can so that whatever rigors of the course we throw at you, okay, fine. You're, you're used to that. Your body is deal, used to dealing with that type of stress. Uh-huh. Then you can focus more of your effort and energy where it's going to be more difficult in dealing with the elements. Uh-huh. One thing that is unique to our career field that is different than the other career fields that I would, I would agree are more physically demanding, whether they be CCT, PJ, SR, TACP. I would agree that those can be more physically demanding on you. But the difference is the amount of time and exposure that we deal with. Mm-hmm. So I, I came in to go see her. I did see her. And that's, I, I was never a, a PJ washout or a CCT washout. However, there was a period of time in my career where I, was, I decided I wanted to join the Army. So I went through Army Special Forces Assessment Selection to become a Green Beret. It's their three-week-long selection course, and I was selected. They, were, they gave me Russian. I was going to be an 18 Charlie, which is an engineering sergeant. Whatever. Long story short, I decided that I wanted to stay and specifically come back here to Fairchild to be cadre and train future SEER specialists. Uh-huh. 
So that's conversation we can have in another podcast. So I went through that course, and yes, it was very physically demanding. But that course and the similarities to the other selection courses is at the end of the day, I went back to barracks and I slept in a bed. Right. Every single day, I had three MREs that I got to eat. Mm-hmm. I had a limited time I could eat them in, but that's three MREs worth of food every single day that I was there. Gotcha. I had as much water as I could drink, and it was always fresh. Mm-hmm. It was out of a water buffalo or a faucet somewhere. I never had to procure my own water. I never had to kill and prepare my own food. Mm-hmm. I never had to build my own shelter minus a few nights where we were doing our star course, in which case it was June in Camp McCall, North Carolina. And so I, I set up a poncho hooch to provide me with some shade. Right. The exact opposite is the case as you go through our training. Yes, there will be times where we provide you with MREs simply mm-hmm. because it's not practical or feasible to do anything other than that. Like on our navigation phase, it just makes more sense to give you MREs so we can continue moving. We don't have the time to focus on preparing food. Gotcha. That's what our initial phase and subsequent phases are for. But you will prepare your food every single day. It's easy to go to a fast food restaurant and order food for a small fraction of a cost. And that's a big reason why a lot of people don't cook their own food because mm-hmm. they have to shop for it. They have to prepare it. And it takes a little bit more effort. But I promise you the award, the reward is much greater oftentimes mm-hmm. in, a, in a healthier way of life and everything else. We're asking our students every day, you want breakfast? Cool. Plan ahead and prepare that because you have to wake up and cook it. <laughs> you want food? Now, don't get me wrong. We're providing them with basic vegetables. We're not telling them, well, you better go forage and hopefully you get lucky. Right. Now, they are foraging. They're finding berries. They're finding plants and all mm-hmm. other sorts of things. And we're additionally providing them with chickens and ducks, goats or cows. And they're learning how to process that meat right? so that they can not only process it, that large game animal or small game animal, but then now they can store that food. Mm-hmm. They can prepare that food. They can utilize different features of that animal, whether they be the bones or whether they be the, the hide or the fat to render it down, to coat things, to cook things, to make soap, to make a knife sheath, to make... I mean, you name it, you can improvise a lot with that. Mm -hmm. So then on top of that, okay, you want to go to bed? Awesome. Go build your bed. Go build your shelter. Then you can go to sleep in it. Whereas in the other courses, yes, it is more, I would say, a higher physical standard to graduate and to make it through. But every day, here's your meals that are provided. Here's your fresh water. Here's your bed. Mm -hmm. Whereas oftentimes... We have to create all of those things. We have to live and be exposed in those elements, and that takes a toll on individuals. Sleeping yeah. outside in the woods alone at night can humble a lot of strong men. Yeah, I can definitely see that, um, But which is one of the attractive things about it as well. Um, I know for myself, I'm, I am by no means a seer on this level of a seer specialist, but I do enjoy being in the woods. And I was just talking to my wife this weekend about if you ever want to feel small, go up into the mountains and stand on top of a mountain and just look out in the vastness where there's no cities. You can't see anything other than woods and you yes. just all your problems, not all your problems, but a lot of your problems just kind of you realize, okay, they marginalize. Yeah. I'm not that, it's not that big of a deal. Like <laughs> just the other day I was driving down the road, not driving, where was I? I was somewhere doing something and I saw, I see a bee pollinating a flower, you know? And, uh, it just, it helped me calm down because of all the stuff going on. You got COVID, you've got, you know, all the stuff that's going on and it made you realize like, this bee is doing this. No matter what happens, this bee is going to continue pollinating flowers and that life is going to go on and yeah. it's okay. Like just we'll get through – everyone will get through this stuff and, 
And so that's, that's, I understand what you're saying with that. Um, it is a very humbling experience mm-hmm. in a good way, though, I think. It really helps kind of like, helps you kind of like put yourself in perspective of, of, yeah. of um, you know, your own issues and things like that. Interesting. Okay. So I just wanted to ask that because I get that question a lot from, from the airmen, you know, and they say, do you have any workouts you should do? And I just tell them, I say, go, go talk to the SEER folks yeah. on the inside of the base. I'm sure they can tell you exactly what you need to do. Um, but I, I, I wanted to hear, you know, you know, some of the mental stuff from somebody yeah. that went through it. So that's good. Okay. Um, so aside from being stationed here on Fairchild, I know there's other places that you guys can, can go. So what are some of those other assignments that people could look for? So that's a, another thing that I think is, is great. I'm, I'm happy to put this information out there because so many people think that all that we do is here. And they don't really understand really that we are effectively at almost every single base across the United States. If there are air crew there, there is a SEER specialist there. Hmm. All right. If we have Air Force, air crew, there will be one or two SEER specialists. And then there's other locations where maybe there are not air crew present. But there, you might find a SEER specialist there as well. So broad brushstroke, wherever a SEER guy goes, he is essentially going to be doing the same thing to some effect. Mm-hmm. Now, how they go about accomplishing that overall mission, which is to, to train and to support air crew or high risk of isolation personnel and effectively help to execute the personal recovery mission. However they go about doing that, they are enabling that in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. It just depends upon the units that they're attached to, the particular mission set of that unit that might cause them to have slightly different experiences. Mm -hmm. But again, the the, the end is the same, right? The means of which they achieve that end might be a little bit different. So if we look across the MAGCOMs, you know, we're here as a subsidiary or tenant unit to AMC, Air Mobility Command is what the 92nd falls under, and we have SEER specialists over there that are supporting them, providing them with currency training, refresher training to ensure that they maintain their combat mission readiness so that they can go and support the wars across the world or the conflicts or humanitarian effort, Mm -hmm. whatever it is that they do, right? We, We all know that nothing, no plane is launched, no mission is effectively executed without gas, right? So it's true, you know, those big layers that say global reach, like, that is true. Anybody that's deployed, anybody that's been around the world, the first question if we're, if we're operating a mission is, okay, what about gas? Uh-huh. Do we have gas? I remember the tanker LNO that sat in, in our jock. I mean, that was one of the most busy individuals there. But what I was doing there was helping to support that PR mission, the personal recovery mission. Uh-huh. So AMC has, has its SEER guys. ACC has their SEER guys. And so you could be at an ACC unit with fighters. You could also be in a rescue squadron or an RQS. So basically, we the way we look at that is you have positions at OSSs, the Operational Support Squadron. Mm-hmm. So you work in ops. And again, you just help maintain that combat mission ready status along with maintaining your own proficiency in training. Then you have your, your ACC units, whether that be an RQS or an OSS at an ACC uh, you know, Global Strike, we have guys there, again, supporting air crew. Mm-hmm. We have individuals that are stationed at AOCs, the Air Operations Centers or Commands, that are responsible for affecting that PR picture for that entire AOR. We have members in deployed environments that are supporting different capacities. We have members at AFSOC that are supporting whether it be AFSOC air crew or supporting AFSOC teams. We also have members at JSOC that are supporting JSOC teams. Mm-hmm. Again, enabling... This, the same execution of their mission to ensure that those individuals are prepared for and provided with 
whatever training they need to help execute their mission effectively and then maintain their own qualifications. So whether it be a, an AMC refueling base or an ACC fighter base or an RQS or an STS or in Korea or in Afghanistan or in Iraq or, you know, down in Honduras, you know, we have we either a deployed location for a member or we have a stateside or, you know, OCONUS location where individuals can be at an OSS, an RQS, JSOC, AFSOC, uh, Global Strike, and you name it. I mean, we're pretty much there. Again, we're affecting it the same, the same end with different means. Uh-huh. So we're just there to enable and to support. And along the way, oftentimes we get to do a lot of fun stuff. We get a lot of lateral movement or a lot of autonomy uh-huh. to come up with what that training looks like and how robust we want that training program to be. Gotcha. So uh, it's 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 a lot of fun. And then there's different subsets within all of those different positions where you have some people in the career field that really enjoy the AFSOC side of the house. They kind of trend, if you will, towards that direction in their career, Uh and they kind of stay there. They don't really ever leave AFSOC, and they're subject matter experts within that world. Right. And then we have individuals that take particular interest in our combatives training and that have helped shape the Air Force combatives program. And that's kind of their wheelhouse, and they've specialized in that. You have individuals that love to jump, and they've been military freefall instructors down at human proving grounds or test parachutists at Edwards and have helped affect the parachuting programs and developed and tested things. Uh, that reminds me, there's another unit, the, uh, the 88 test, the Air Force Test and Evaluation Squadron. We have SEER guys there that are running those. Um, so there's different niches in which sometimes SEER guys will find themselves within that they happen to hold a particular interest in, whether, like I said, that's combatives or jumping or the PR side of things. Some individuals really enjoy being at base level at an OSS because it affords us a more of a, a normal schedule uh-huh. and that it's kind of your, your Monday to Friday, weekends and holidays off, like nine to five kind of Air Force schedule because right. they can focus on their family or they may enjoy that area. So there's, there's a lot of different variety that we get with our base set of skills that qualifies us uh, or at least makes us capable to go and affect those different missions. Okay. So there's, there's quite a few opportunities then once you get. Oh, yeah. What, I mean, once you, like you said, you do your do time, your time here, here. And, and then there's a ton. Out. Yeah, there's a ton you can learn here, though, because, again, from resistance training to water survival training to our parachuting shop to our resistance training academics to, uh, to SST, SEER specialist training, there are a variety of different roles that you can fill that all provide you with the skills that you're going to need to go out and help be effective and execute whatever directive that that commander has for that mission, wherever it is that you go. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, do you find yourself still enjoying going out to the woods and, and being out there now that that's kind of your job? You know how uh, some people will like, have a hobby, they love it, and then oh, I want to do it for a living. I've heard a bunch of them get into whatever it is, and they realize oh, this is just, you know, now it becomes a job. So has that affected you at all as far as your hobbies? Well, um, I, would, I would say given the amount of time we are at SST in particular here at the 66, I don't have the exact number off my head, but I don't think I'm too far off when I say over 200 plus days of the year we're TDY to the woods, mm. uh, carrying through two classes, right? So two teams go through a year. Um, we're out there quite a bit. And I will say personally, 
when I get back from the woods, depending upon how much time is in between phases, sometimes it's a few days, sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's two weeks. Uh-huh. I typically enjoy my time at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I enjoy a little bit of society and civilization and, and that type of thing. I enjoy like having a thermostat and hot running water <laughs> yeah. and, you know, lights that at a flick of a switch, I can have, I can have lights. Uh-huh. Um, Whereas there are other individuals I know that are really avid hunters that I work with that, I mean, they'll get back from the woods on a Friday and Saturday morning they're out and, you know, stalking uh, a deer or sitting in a tree stand or bird hunting or fishing or whatever season it is, you name it, they'll mm-hmm. do that. Um, now, I still like to go out and go paddleboarding and things of that nature. I don't necessarily go camping as often, but again, that's because it's it's pretty much my profession. Right. However, I know plenty of seer guys that they come back from the woods, they're back out there in the weekend, they want to camp again on their, I say camping like we, we were doing that for our job. Yes, we were out in the woods, but because it is work, oftentimes it's not nearly as enjoyable as right. camping. Right. Um, I mean, that being said, it's just simply being a cadre at SST is the greatest job I've ever had. Mm. And oftentimes it's amazing that that is work. Sometimes I remind myself that what I am doing is actually work. Now, we put in long days and we put in a lot of effort to help train our students to to be successful in our pipeline. And I, I just think how blessed I am to enjoy the individuals that I work with, that mm-hmm. I respect and admire. And so much so that it's I get more excited to go to the woods with them. Sometimes than I do come into the office. A lot of us, when we have to come in in garrison in the office do the email, do the big Air Force stuff. That's where a lot of us are lacking. Yeah. If I'm going to be completely honest and, and humble myself, I am lacking in the big blue side of things with emails and our appointments and our CBTs. We're not the best at that. But we have no problem putting forth 18-hour days in the woods. We'll do that all day long. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't really care about that um, because we thrive in that environment. So, um while I do enjoy going out in the woods, I also enjoy my time when I come home. So mm-hmm. it, I wouldn't say it's put a negative outlook on my enjoyment, but at the same time, I don't exactly rush back out there as soon as I return from the woods. Gotcha. So and everybody's, you know, they've got their different mm-hmm. outlook on that. What is your um, favorite part about instructing in the tech school? Because I've been an instructor myself. Now, I wasn't mm-hmm. a tech school instructor, so the longest I would have you know, train, I worked at BMT. I was a seaborne instructor down there mm-hmm. for almost five years. So we would usually get them for the day. Sometimes if you worked on the B side of BMT, you'd have in students for the entire week. Um, and I used to really enjoy teaching. So what is your favorite part about teaching tech school students that you have for, you know, for so long periods of time? I would kind of a, a two sided question for me. Um, cause I'm, I'm almost at three years at our tech school here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, I put through quite a few, well, you know, two teams a year and, and all the students that are associated with that. One thing that I enjoy the most is the beginning to end of a product, if you will. Not to say that, you know, that person is just some product, but yeah, I get you. for me, it's, it's taking a student that on day one of our first phase, which is called CSS Course Survival Skills, that might have a background where they've never stepped foot in the woods, they've never tied a knot before, they've never sewn anything in their life. So going from that all the way five and a half months later to be standing there and, and in particular when they walk across that stage 
and they've bloused their boots, they've donned their berets, they've had their instructor cookie pinned on, all the pomp and circumstances ended. And I then, as cadre, get to be one of the first people to shake their hands, look at them in the eye, say congratulations, and welcome to the Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. Seeing that that raw piece of clay, if you will, and then the the molding and the shaping and the equal parts of effort, not just on our behalf as cadre, but equal parts and sometimes more maybe on their behalf mm -hmm. to meet us and to see the, the, the triumphs and the tribulations throughout the ups and the downs. Cause it's, it, you know, it's not all unicorns and rainbows. Right? Oh yeah. Uh, but then to be there at the end and know that feeling of accomplishment mm -hmm. and to now say that I was a part of that. I help that individual achieve things that they did not know possibly they were capable of achieving. I help them overcome obstacles they believe to be insurmountable. Mm -hmm. And having a role in that, I would say, is, is one of the most gratifying things ever. And then the second part would be the additional mentorship. So I guess it's kind of wrapped into one, mm -hmm. but I guess when I say the additional mentorship, for me, it's trying to make them better than I could ever possibly be to give them all the bits of information that I have acquired in my experiences so that hopefully they're already starting from a higher base than what I started at. Now, and don't remember, I had phenomenal cadre, right? But I think the goal of, of anybody who's trying to mentor or to shape someone to be their replacement should be the, to make them better, mm -hmm. right? Like I don't have children, but I know that someday my goal will be to give them a better something than what I had yep. so that it sets them up for better. So that's how I view these, these students are not as intimately as children. Right. But I do view them as, as kind of, you know, my brothers, at least like a little brother is more appropriate. Mm -hmm. And man, if I can impart on them some lessons learned in life and in the career field that they can just maybe avoid certain pitfalls or just start with that much more knowledge, not only will they be better off, but then effectively all of their students in the future, so those air crew, those high-risk isolation personnel, and then the Air Force is going to be better off in the end because I'm helping to create a better product uh -huh. for the Air Force that in turn can create a better product. Uh -huh. So I would say those are the two things that for me is the most rewarding aspect or what I enjoy the most about being an instructor. So um, what, what's, what's next for you? What are you looking at here? And So how long are your instructor stints, first of all? Are they so control tour type thing? We or? do have controlled tours. So, you know, we can be at SST when you come over. Typically, you get put on like a three-year code or a code 44. Mm -hmm. So a three-year controlled tour. We can still deploy as even though it's a controlled tour. Mm -hmm. um, most individuals, when they graduate, they incur, I believe, a four-year code. And then sometimes we'll come over here, get an additional three years. So some guys, before they leave Fairchild, will have seven or eight years time on station. Right. Um, typical assignments would last, I would say, anywhere from three to four, okay. as is pretty common across the Air Force. So being that I'm a returnee to Fairchild, I'm coming up on three years, my code is up. So what that looks like for me is I can start looking for assignments that are running on Equals Plus, uh, which I have. I recently clicked on a button, you know, I, I clicked the button to uh, for a job down at Davis Monthan at the 48th RQS. Still waiting to hear back on that. Uh, if I get it, awesome. I'm very happy and excited to go down there and you know do what I can to help effectively execute their mission. If I don't get it, well then I'll see what other assignments are out there. We have some overseas ads that we'll be running later on this year. Mm 
Um, and if I decide to stay local, I'm, I might try and head over to parachuting to uh, help continue to grow that program. Um, just because I've I've been fortunate enough, and while everybody in our career field gets jump as you get a basic airborne training, I've been fortunate um, that I was you know I had my stuff ready to go, I was in the right place at the right time, so I was able to get static line jump master and free fall. Oh, wow. So it's it's again I'm lucky. Not everybody gets it. I was in the right place at the right time, and I had my stuff my stuff ready to go when that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so just because I have those qualifications and that training and experience, um, I know that parachuting is a place that could always use more experience. It, it never hurts to have experience in a in something we do that is fun, albeit, but also uh, comes with a lot of risk as well. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll see. It's kind of up in the air right now. Um, I also just finished my degree. And I'm what in uh, leadership. Leadership, okay. Yeah, so I have where'd a bachelor's you, of science and leadership at Trident University Online. Okay. Uh, I I know that we've got Park here on campus or you know on Fairchild, but I could not recommend Trident more. Um, I enjoyed the courses that I took. I, mm-hmm. I like I said, I had previous college uh, from when I came in. There was also a period of time we never really, like finished my crazy career, but there yeah. was a period of time where I got out of the military and went back to college and then I contracted and then I was an active guard member and then I came back in. So the active guard thing wasn't too long ago, right? I want to say when you it came was, through so the NCOP was, class, you were active guard, I thought. No, I was not. There was okay. members there, but I, I left active guard in 2017 when I returned to regular okay. active duty. So it was just telling you about it. Yeah. yeah. So I've been, out of the active guard for almost three years because mm-hmm. I left active guard reserve and then went straight back into regular active duty. Gotcha. So okay. in a nutshell, I did four years of active duty from 08 to 12 as a SEER guy. I got out, I went to school for a little bit. Then I found a job contracting, teaching SEER stuff at Evasion and Contact for Capture down in San Antonio mm-hmm. at Lackland. I did that for just a little over a year and realized, okay, my time serving is, is not done. I want to serve. I'm capable. I miss it. They opened up these opportunities to fill positions as an active guard member. And I got selected for a position to go to Jacksonville, Florida at the 125th Fighter Wing. I had F-15C models there. So I went there. I stood up their SEER program. Um, I was the uh, Southeastern Regional SEER Specialist for the Air National Guard. Mm-hmm. So I was responsible for Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina. I went over to Mississippi. I went up to Illinois, my home state, to provide some training. went down to Puerto Rico. So I stood up that program. They had never had a SEER specialist before. So it was an E7, seven-level program. I was a E4, five-level with no base level experience. So I learned really quickly the importance of AFIs and regulations mm-hmm. and how to read all that. Um, but again, the training that we get here, not that they like we teach people how to read a reg, but we understand how to seek out solutions to problems and in spite of the obstacles that may be presented, how to work through overcoming them. So um, I did that and I enjoyed it. That was, uh, I enjoyed parts of it, other parts of it I didn't enjoy, but hey, such is life. Yep. Uh, that's when I decided maybe I'd do the whole army thing. So I went and did that. And then I got a last minute TDY up here a month before I was supposed to ship out and go to the Q course, which is the qualification course where they train you how to become a Green Beret. So. I come up here, last minute TUI, see my good friend, uh, Sergeant Keith Schmidt, who he and I worked together at uh, SST. And essentially, I felt a very strong calling to come back here and to come to SST mm-hmm. um, to do exactly what I told you, which is my greatest pleasure and you know, training and mentoring my replacements. Mm-hmm. So I put in the paperwork to return to regular active duty from active guard. 
And a few months later, I PCS back up here, which was November of 2017. So like I said, almost at three years back here. So awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sitting down and talking to me today. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time as well as I know you're, you're very busy. So before, before we uh, end this, do you have anything, uh, last minute stuff you want to, anything you want to leave anybody with or. If anybody has any questions, like you said, people approach you and ask mm-hmm. about whether it's workouts or whether it's something else. I mean, definitely send them, if nothing else, my direction. I Being cadre at SST, like I am at the stone, so to speak. Like right. I am at the focal point. So if it's specific to training and becoming a SEER specialist, I can help with that. Now, with regards to what the cross-training process is, like – that's for career, you know, advisors yeah, to, yeah, to handle that stuff. <laughs> I don't know how to initiate that, but I can help people if they if their goal is to become a SEER specialist, I can help provide them more specific insight as to what it is we do here, what it is we do out and abroad in the Air Force, more specifics on what we do deployed, and then maybe what it's like. Or I can put them in touch with people that have families, but I can at least speak to the training aspect what, what they can expect mm-hmm. and how they can best prepare for it, whether that's physically or mentally or, or anything else. So I, I'm always more than happy to help provide any mentorship. As I said, my degree is in leadership and I try to practice a more servant-based leadership. Mm-hmm. So anything that I can do to help enable others to achieve their goal, that's what I'm all about. Uh, other than that, thanks for having me on here. You know, I enjoy talking about myself, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, I get a lot of questions about it I, and I, I don't have the answers. So I figured let's, let's sit down and talk to someone who has some of the answers and um, I I don't know much about the SEER world either. I've no, I mean I know I know that we had SEER specialists and that they come here for training and that some of it's kind of hard, but that was about it. So yeah. I, I learned a lot today as well. Um, so you heard everybody. If you have any questions, uh, come over here and get a hold of Star- Staff Sergeant Phil DeFrades, and he could definitely help you out. So well, again, I appreciate you sitting down and talking to me. And uh, anytime you need anything from me, just let me know. And yeah. I look forward to. Um, to putting this out and seeing what, what everyone thinks about it. So thanks yeah, again. I hope they enjoy it. Thanks for having me on. Sorry, yeah, no worries. All right, everybody. Until next time. Well, that's it for this episode of the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. If you have show ideas, people you'd like to hear from, or if you'd like to be on the podcast, contact us at fafbcaa at gmail.com.